0: The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts seventeen sixteen through thirty three. If you're able, please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Eileen. Talking this morning, every Sunday a couple of elders come and they pray for it, whomever it is that is preaching. And this morning they came and were praying with me. And uh, one of the gentlemen said, Bill, I'm really going to be praying for you. This is the most important sermon of the year. And I was like, Well, that's no pressure um, at all. Um, but I was thinking about it. And you know, this really is a, a seminal message in a sense that it is at the very core of the ministry of the gospel we've been studying through the book of acts we've been looking at acts and saying that acts uh, is included in the canon of scripture the 66 books of god's inspired and fallible holy word it's there because it shows what the mission of the church is it shows that christ in luke in the gospel of luke christ said this is my mission And he came and he presented his life as a sacrifice for many. He came and he lived perfectly in the world as the perfect God-man. And then, in substitutionary fashion, gave his life for all of those, as he said, all of those out of the world that the Father has given to me, now I lay down my life for them. And not one who is given to me will I lose, except for the son of perdition, as he said. But he said, all will be saved who believe in me. And that was the gospel message. And it says that he lived his life, that he was tried, crucified, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead on the third day, that he lived among the disciples for 40 days, continuing to teach them and many others. And then he ascended into heaven and is currently seated. That doesn't mean he's sitting with his legs crossed, sipping something and waiting for God to go, okay, back, but he's seated. It means he is in a place of authority at the right hand of the father. And there it says that he sent his Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son, now sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, equal with God the Father and God the Son in power and in glory, and has filled the individual Christian and then collectively filled the Christian church with the power of the Spirit descending as it did uh, on uh, the temple in the Old Testament, that powerful uh, sense, the spirit which descended upon Mary, that spirit which came uh, at Pentecost in Acts, uh, both to the Jews that we saw early and then uh, to the Gentiles, that the, the spirit came and is now descended upon us, filling us for the purpose of being happy in life. Of just making it through gathering all the toys that we can, and being happy and not bored? Absolutely not. Unfortunately, that is the gospel message of way too many churches in the world today that say that Jesus Christ came in the world to make you happy. No, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and then to give those redeemed sinners a mission to go out into the world and save sinners in his name. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And so we've seen this movement of the church out from uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now into the ends of the earth. Paul uh, is on his second missionary journey, He is with Silas and with Timothy, Uh, he and Barnabas had a disagreement. They didn't fall out of being now uh, unable to speak, it's just that they disagreed about something and so Barnabas uh, went out with John Mark and they're doing their ministry over here. Paul is doing his ministry with Silas over here. Amazing how God can use even conflict uh, within the body of Christ to continue to spread the gospel uh, in the midst of that. And so he goes about, he's been into southern uh, Turkey again, into the areas of Galatia, uh, where he established the early church on his first missionary journey, and now he's going back there, re-encouraging the churches that are there, and now he's moved uh, from that area into Greece. He's in Thessalonica, and then he moves in the first part of chapter 17 into the city of Thessalonica, and he's met in Thessalonica with opposition. And he's run out of Thessalonica. Then he moves over to Berea. And things are going a little bit better in Berea. But then the folks in Thessalonica who didn't like him in Thessalonica don't want him having any advantage in Berea. So they go to Berea. And they stir up trouble for him in Berea. And so the brethren there in Berea say, hey, Paul, we want to get you out of here. Your ministry is too important for you to be martyred right now. And he he was sent to Athens. And so he goes to Athens on his own. And he calls for Timothy and for Silas to come and join him, but uh, that's not like a short Uber ride away, folks. This is a boat trip and a walk and a lot of stuff. And so Paul, we find him now, beginning in verse 16, we find him in Athens. And you may think of Athens with all the glory and the pictures of, of Greece when it was the power of the world, but that's a different Athens. Athens has now been subjugated to Rome. The power of the world is in Alexandria, and it's in Rome, and it's not in Greece anymore. Greece is still a beautiful city with all of the monuments that some of you may have traveled around and seen, but Greece has been diminished, and Athens has been diminished. Uh, Some say that uh, one writer put it a few years after uh, the time that Paul was there, it was easier to meet a god in Athens than to meet a man, that the citizenship was somewhere around 10,000 people, and the amount of idols uh, and the images of deities was around 30,000. There was a three-to-one ratio of idols to individuals in Athens. And Paul is there, alone, doing what Paul does. One, making a living. He was a tent maker. He said later, he goes, I never did anything and asked you to take care of me. I always took care of myself. Never wanted to be a burden to the church. So he went, and he went to the synagogue. He was Jewish. He said he would start there. And he presented Messiah to the Jews who believed in Messiah. And he said, Jesus is that Messiah. But he also went into the marketplace. He went uh, into uh, the place uh, and the marketplace, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. But it says that he was conversing uh, with anybody and everybody uh, who was there. And so, as we as we look this morning, I want you to see a few things. Uh, I want us to learn first this morning that as Christians we are called to engage in the public square as Christians, we are called to engage our faith in the public square, in the public arena. This is a debunking of a lie that says this, religion is what? A private matter. My friends, that is not a biblical concept. If Paul had had that concept, Uh, Paul would have been sitting around, sipping on some Greek tea and eating baklava, uh, and waiting around for the rest of his entourage to come, uh, and he wouldn't have done anything. But Paul, knowing that religion, and most especially the true religion that is Christianity, the gospel itself, is called to step right into the middle of culture, right into the very middle of where life is happening, and to engage it with the true truth that's what we're called to do it is not private it is not private it is not you and God and wow and thou it is you and God and everybody else and the world around should know about what you believe and that's what Paul did he stepped in He stepped in, and it says that now Paul was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day, uh, those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And so he was there, and it says in verse 19 he was over in the Areopagus. Now, this idea of public square or marketplace You need to get out of an American view and a Western view of that. This was the place where, yes, there was the Harris Teeter and the Publix and the Ingalls and and the Bilo. That was also all the groceries were bought there, but everything else was done there as well. You would have seen just off of that, you would have seen the places where all of the religion and all the temples were. Uh, You would have seen education because education back then wasn't in this kind of schoolhouse where we were. Uh, It was where you would go and link up with a leader, with a philosopher, with a a, a person of great intellect, and you would see those individuals walking around or sitting and people learning from them uh, in that place. Judges would have been dispensing justice sitting out in the marketplace. It was the place where the entirety of culture came out. If you wanted to see and understand uh, about what Greece and Athens was like, you went to the marketplace. And guess where Paul went? To the marketplace. And he bumped into all kinds of people there. He dealt with the religious people. He dealt with church folk. Because that's what he needs to do too. By the way, Church is filled with unconverted people, and I believe constantly that one of the greatest challenges is to see church people come to faith. But Paul believed, as I do, that it's good to preach the gospel every week, even here, uh, to those of you who have grown up in church. Because I want to make sure that you're not being, thinking you're being saved by your good works or your moralism uh, or by anything, but it's in Christ alone of your salvation. But we also step out of the church into the public forum And he was dealing with Epicureans and Stoics. And you know who they are, right? Of course not. Because you probably don't study philosophy. And we surely don't study the dead philosophies of of all of these things. But Paul would have. He knew how to converse with the Epicureans. Epicureans believe that everything happens by chance. And death is the end and extinction of all life. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. That was the call of the Epicurean. They believed that there are gods, but those gods have nothing to do with the world. They were practical agnostics. They were working out, and they believed that pleasure is the chief end of man. But interesting and oddly enough, they said to live a simple lifestyle. Interesting conflict, even within their own uh, philosophical view. Now, the Stoics believed they were pantheists. Everything was a god. There was a god in uh, everything, And that everything happened and whatever happened to them was their destiny. It was fate. It was set. And consequently, they live, uh, they sought to live a life of apathy and detachment. They were fatalistic. When you call somebody a stoic, usually that is not a compliment. You're saying you're detached from your emotions. You're detached from the world. You're a fatalist. And Paul was right smack dab in the middle uh, of these two parties, He decided, you know where I'm going to go? I'm going to go to the floor of Senate. I'm going to go to the floor of the House. I'm going to speak to Republicans and Democrats. I'm going to go to Harvard, and I'm going to go to Covenant College. I'm going to go to Yale, and I'm going to go to Baylor University. I'm going to go everywhere. I'm going to go, and I'm going to talk with everybody that I can possibly talk to about the truth of the gospel. And so what we learn by that is that Christians are also called to the public square. If you read Proverbs 1, verses 20 and 21, it says this, Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets she raises her voice, at the head of the noisy streets she cries out at the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Friends, the Christian has to speak. We have to be in places to speak. And when we go out and we Uh, engage in the public forum, here's a couple of things uh, within it that you need to see. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, uh, Paul looks and it says, now Paul while there was waiting in Athens and his spirit was provoked within him because he saw the city. Observe what's going on around you. Paul saw what was going on. And if you looked underneath that word, you would see that the word is not blepo, which is to look at. That's the common Greek word for looking. If it said that he just walked around and was observing, we would have gone and Paul blepoed Athens. But it, it didn't say that. It said that Paul theoreoed Athens. Theoreo, theorized Athens. He looked at Athens and he perceived that word means what was underneath it. He was creating a theory of look at everything that's there. 30,000 idols, 30,000 graven images, 30,000 temples, 30,000 things going on. And he looked and he understood that there was something up underneath it. He saw the city. He was discerning what was happening. He was a student of Athens that fast. Paul was a student of every place he went. Because he saw it. He didn't just observe it and look at it through his iPhone. He considered it. And he thought of the deeper, more profound implications of the things uh, that were underneath it. And was asking the question, what's really going on? What's really going on around here? What are people worshiping? Because, you see, he understood his worldview was such that he knew that we were all worshiping something. You may not believe that, but you're a worshiper. To worship means to live for something. It means that you have taken something and it is now in an ultimate place in your life and you are serving it, you are living for it. And Paul was looking around uh, and later Luther said that the human heart is an idol factory. We produce idols to worship all the time. And he looked at these idols, and all of these idols were different gods that were created to serve, to, to meet different needs, and people served different gods, and they were doing all of that. And some of them were the god of beauty. Is beauty a bad thing? Of course not. But beauty, when it becomes an ultimate thing, ah, now it's become a God. I gave you some homework and asked how much money is spent in the cosmetic industry every year. I wonder what that number would be. You don't think we care about beauty? You don't think that we think that we can't freeze some of this fat, suck some of this fat, tighten some of this fat, and somehow we're going to be better about it? We've ascended a good thing. It's good. Beauty's a good thing. Ah, but when you have to have it, it becomes a God. What about education? Is it good to have an education? How many of you would say yes? What if you have to have it? What if it becomes the ultimate thing that you say, oh, I'm educated and they're not educated? Well, where are you educated? Well, I was educated in the Ivy League schools. Well, I was educated in the School of Hard Knocks. Well, I was, wasn't educated. Well, I graduated summa cum laude and I graduated, thank the Lordy. It just doesn't really matter. Because education's a good thing, but when we ascend it, into a thing of, I have to get an A. I, I have to do that. Is performing well a good thing? I mean, doing your best? Sure it is, but when you have to have it. When you have to have it. And so what Paul realized was that Athens was filled with all kinds of gods who were demanding life and giving empty promises because if they were ever attained, still wasn't enough. Still wasn't enough. I was so excited in January. I met my goal weight. I met it, didn't like it, and left it. (laughs) Moved right back to another place. So we look and we go, oh, if I only get to that number then, and you know what? I got to that number. You know what the very first thought I had in me was? If I can get to that number, then I can get to that number. But it promised me happiness at that number. And all I got at that number was dissatisfaction because somebody else was at a better number. Somebody else looked at me as one of my sons did and said, Dad, it looks like you've lost some weight. And I said, I have. I feel pretty good. And he went and he got a side view and he went, gobble, 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 gobble. (laughs) It's like, I'm going to kill you. I didn't say that public, just edit that out. I said, oh, how deeply painful. No, I said, I'm going to kill you. I was like, oh my gosh, and you know what came into my mind? I wonder how you tuck that in. (laughs) It's never enough. I'm getting lost, but it's never enough. Beauty's a good thing. Money is a good thing, but it can't be an ultimate thing. Work, relationships, grades, sports, they can be good things but they can never become ultimate things. So Paul looked around and he observed. What are the idols? What are their gods? What are they serving? Then it says in verse 16 uh, that his heart was provoked within him. Friends, when you're in the public space, if you're an an outline person, this is like B under point A, uh, that you would observe, that you would see what's going on, uh, B, that you would be provoked uh, by it. It says that he was provoked uh, within him that he looked around and his heart was provoked. You see, he looked and the lost beliefs, the idols of our culture should stir us to emotion. It should stir something in us. John Stott, the great Anglican pastor and commentator, wrote on this passage. He said that we can't speak like Paul speaks because we don't see things like Paul sees them, and we don't see things like Paul sees them because we don't feel the way that Paul feels about them. We don't speak like Paul because we don't see like Paul. Paul saw, and you know what Paul saw? People who were serving God's that were ultimately damning their souls, and you see the word uh, in the in the Greek there is a word that means a seizure. Paul was seized within his heart uh, that he had a deep feeling more than simply anger more than simply anger. Some said that he was angered within him. Well, there was a stirring of anger, but that anger, the same word is described of God in his jealousy towards his people, his jealousy towards his own name. He's jealous, but not in the human understanding of jealous. He's passionate, but not in the human understanding of passion You see, God loves with an amazing passion. And when he sees the things that he loves so deeply, destroying themselves and being destroyed by evil in the world, he seizes within his heart. How many of you love someone deeply and desperately? When you see evil destroying them or them making choices to destroy themselves, friends... Anger is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. And when you see evil coming at someone you love, your heart just, it seizes within you. And it brings about a courage and a truth and an anger that says, I want to address that. And it brings about a compassion and a gentleness that says, you're my child. You're my spouse. You're my friend. You see, God, when he views humanity, he views it in a passion that says, I hate the effect of evil on the created being. I hate it. And I hate it so much that I'm going to destroy my son for it. I hate evil so much that I'm gonna love you with a compassion that says you can never find me, but I can find you. Oh, friends, do you feel like Paul feels or do you just look around the world and go, yeah, look at those idiots. Lisa and I were going up to a Clemson football game Last this past football season and I walked in to the grocery store and about got run over by a bunch of fraternity boys they literally had three shopping carts filled with cases of beer, brimming over with cases of beer and I looked at them and I said what are you boys looking for and they said oh we found it, I said no what are y'all looking for because you're not going to find it in there and they looked at me like get out of the way old man and I was caught with such sadness to think that those boys, many of which probably were raised in good southern churches, went to youth group and had a Holy Jesus experience with some Jesus bumps on a mountaintop one day, were sitting there looking for fulfillment in the bottom of a 12 ounce can and chasing a girl around later that night. And I just wanted to go to them and go, You're buying into a lie that will lead you straight to the pit of hell. Not because I don't think it's okay to drink alcohol, but because you're looking for something in the alcohol that only the God of the universe can offer you. You're looking for something in bed that only the intimacy of a God who loves you can offer you. We're stirred within us. So the question for you as a Christian, as you look around this world in which God has implanted us into the low country, in the midst of all of its beauty, are you moved by its brokenness that makes you so courageous that you will speak the truth and so tender that you will do it in a loving way that people know you love them? We're provoked by what we see. We have to be moved on the inside like God is moved. We must have the mix of anger towards the sin of the world and its effect on our family and our friends and our culture along with the incredible sense of love which is communicated to us in Christ. Friends, I'm not trying to give you ten steps to how to reach your neighbor better. The Bible is not a steps method. The Bible teaches us what kind of person God uses. And the way that you can become more like this is to come and look at the cross more. And to see the beauty of God's truth and his anger towards sin, that it had to be dealt with, and the beauty of his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It elicits that response that we're provoked within uh, ourselves. And then, once you've been provoked, we speak. Once you've seen, observed, looked around, considered, prayed, asked God to give you insight, uh, then you go and you're like, I have to say something. I have to say something. I have to engage. I can't wait for somebody else to engage. I'm going to engage. Well, what do you engage with? Look at what Paul engaged with. It's the second big point if you're an outline person. Communicate Christ in the gospel. Communicate Christ in the gospel. I'm not going to give you John Frame's apologetics outline. I'm not going to give you evidence that demands a verdict. All good things. Wonderful in their place. What Paul did, it said that Paul reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace. He just began to speak, and he began to communicate the belief of the gospel. A couple of just little maybe rules of engagement really quickly. One, most of the time it is best to engage in in these kind of conversations within the context of relationship if you can have it. That is not a steadfast rule that says, well, I don't have a relationship, therefore I can't speak. It's just saying often and most times it works better if you do have a relationship. That's why we want you to have a relationship with your friends and your neighbors who don't know Jesus. So that in the context of that relationship, you can begin to share Christ. But even if you don't, if I, by the way, if you're leaving church today and you're somebody who you don't know, walking across 278, do not say that you have to earn the right to engage their life. Run and grab them and pull them back to safety. Be better if you were friends with them and said, hey, probably better not to walk out in the middle of 278. But both work. Second, here's something that's so important, and by the way, absolutely lost in our culture today. State the other person's position in such a way that they would actually agree with you. Do not create straw men to tear down, that you have studied their position so well. That when you speak to somebody who disagrees with you as a Christian coming from a Christian worldview, you can present their worldview in such a way that they would say, that's exactly what I believe, and wow, you said it better than I could say it. Archibald Alexander, who was one of the great old Princeton theologians, said, do not assign a position to an opponent that she will not own even if you believe it is the necessary consequence of their position. Meaning this. Well, if you believe that, then you must believe that. If you believe in abortion, then you think it's okay to murder old people. I I never said that I think it's okay to euthanize elderly people. You must think that it's okay uh, to kill children in the womb that who have Down syndrome. No, I didn't say that either. I'm against Down syndrome. You can't posit into somebody else something that they didn't say. And by the way for all the wonderful things of social media and of the Instagram and of blogs it has emboldened cowards. Versus having to actually engage with somebody else and know their position so well. This takes a lot of work, by the way, to know somebody else's position so well. It takes a great deal of work. And then when you do start to talk to them and you begin uh, to engage them Do not shy away from communicating the plain truth of Scripture. Look at verses 3, 18, and 32 in chapter 17. Paul preached Christ and him resurrected. He said, friends, this is the only place that you can find, possibly find, life. He showed that God was self-sufficient. He didn't need man, verses 24 and 25. He highlighted the lost nature of man, uh, that man could search and grapple around. And again, uh, Paul used uh, the optative mood, which you would have known by reading it in the English. And the optative mood of seek, feel, and find means that there's the possibility of looking without the probability of finding. What Paul was saying was the world's searching. Sure, they're searching for life. But they're not going to find God. God has to find them. And so we come and we engage uh, with that. And we preach the whole counsel of God. We preach Christ and him crucified because this is what we believe. If there is no resurrection, then there is no gospel. And if there is no gospel, then there is no hope. Period. Some of you are going to go, "Ah, oh, I knew you are that old simple fundamentalist. And you're going back to it. Well, those are kind of the fundamentals. I believe that if you get on a bike, you need to put your feet on the pedals. You need to go this way. That's fundamentalism. I think that's how you ride. Put your seat, put your tail on the, on the seat and go. Christianity the same way. Jesus Christ resurrected, heart of the gospel. Gospel, heart of life and hope and peace for people. We preach it because we believe that in the gospel, in Christ himself is where there is hope. If you don't have a cross in your understanding, if you say you don't understand the gospel, I don't believe in the gospel, if you don't have a cross in your religion, you either have moralism or relativism. You have one that says you're going to have to earn your way to God or one that says it doesn't matter at all how you live. You have Epicureans or Stoics. And Paul came right in with the truth and the beauty of Christ. And what should you expect when you begin to preach and teach the gospel? And by the way, shameless plug, The last Friday night of this month and Saturday morning, we're going to be helping train you on how to present the gospel, not techniques. We're going to present John and the gospel of John and how to begin a gospel-centered spiritual conversation with a non-Christian so that you can share Christ with them unashamedly. So if you want to be equipped, we invite you to come. So what should you expect? Quickly, three things. They're all found in here. You should expect opposition. People kept running Paul out of town. And when they didn't run him out of town, this group of people called him a babbler. You know what a babbler means? It means a seed pecker. It was a derogatory term of a chicken or of a gutter sparrow that was chirping in the gutter, uh, peeping around, borrowed ideas from somebody else. These men looked down on Paul like he was nothing. And some people may look down on you and go, what a simpleton you are. You really believe this? I can't tell you how many times. I've been told that by people. You really believe this? And my answer is, yeah, I do. And I stake my very life on it. I'm a seed pecker, I guess. Just a babbler. Expect opposition, but also expect curiosity. Some said, we'd like to hear more about this. We'd like to talk to you more. I've got people that I've been praying for for two years. And Lisa and I just had a friend over, one of those men, and we talked because he was like, I want to continue to talk. Awesome. He's curious about what we're about and what we stand for in this gospel that we believe in. He doesn't believe it yet, but he's thinking about it. And then for some, you should believe that they're going to come to believe. You should have an expectation that some will come to faith to have that belief. The field is ripe unto harvest, the Lord says. So quickly, in conclusion, before we come to the table, I'm going to speak to both audiences that are here and both audiences that are listening. To the Christian, how do you see the world around you? Are you even observing it? Is it something to be feared and to run away from and to circle the wagons and keep everybody in your family safe and you safe, Or does the world provoke within you something to such a degree that your passion and your compassion, your truth and your gentleness, your courage and your meekness come out within you? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Or do you believe that it is the power of God unto salvation? That's for the Christian. To you, the non-Christian, who may be listening and you say, I'm not a religious person or I just don't have faith. Both of those statements aren't true you are religious, you are bound to something, and you do have faith. The question simply is, what are you putting your faith in? Are you putting faith in your intellect, in your doubt? Are you putting faith uh, in something else that's in the world? Are you putting fa- You're putting faith somewhere. The question is, what are you putting your faith in? You see, biblical faith isn't simply saying, oh, I think I could believe that. I could ascend to that. I'll end with this illustration in 1859 there was this man Charles Blondin Charles Blondin was a trapeze artist and a man who walked on tight ropes and he decided that it would be a cool thing to do it over Niagara Falls 160 feet above uh, Niagara Falls went back and forth between Canada and the United States and crowds were on both sides and it says that he did it in a sackcloth hopping along Uh, he did it uh, on stilts Uh, another time he did it on a bicycle evidently it was a pretty cool thing to watch. And then one time he did it with a wheelbarrow and he walked all the way across and he came back across with the wheelbarrow and everybody was like, that's amazing. And he said, how many of you think that I could do that with a person in the wheelbarrow? And the entire crowd was like, oh, we've seen you hop, bike, stilt it, yep, we think you can do it. Guess what his next question was? Any of you want to get in the wheelbarrow? Not one single taker. Friends, Christian faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. It is not sitting there and going, yeah, I think Jesus could do that. Yeah, I think the Bible is it. Friends, it is taking your life and giving it fully to Christ and saying, I trust you with every bit of who I am. Are you willing, friends, to get in the wheelbarrow today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it shapes and challenges and moves us. And I pray that as we come, we would see you. For those who are followers of you, would our hearts be provoked within us as we observe the world around us and the effect of sin, and it would lead us to speak in such a way that with great courage and truth, But with incredible gentleness and compassion, we would share Christ and him crucified to the world around, knowing that some will reject us, some will be curious, and still some, and we pray many, would come to faith. And Father, for those who are here this morning who don't know you, I pray that they would be willing to be honest and challenge their own faith assumptions and place them against Scripture and against the truth of your word. And, Father, would you move them to believe in you. But for all of us, would we get in the wheelbarrow today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.